for me. <laughs> Prague is the drug that I'm thinking of. Hey, Prague fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by... Lee. Craig. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music, while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, or on Mastodon at UP3Show on the Mastodon.social server. You can also find us on our homepage at up3show.com, where you'll find all of our back episodes as well as extra multimedia content from time to time. Is there any merch up on the website, Tony? No, there is not. You haven't made any, Craig. I think we need to make some merch. I think we need to as well. If every one of our listeners bought a shirt, we'd have $3. (laughs) (laughs) If you just can't get enough of the show, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. Why don't I start with you tonight, Craig? What have you been up to since last time? I'm doing a work project. It's kind of fun. I'm going to Iceland next week. Nice. I'm going to go sit in some hot springs and walk on some glaciers and float in some water. See some volcanoes. And and see some volcanoes. Hopefully I'll be able to get home. And uh, I got a gig coming up little jazz gig with a couple other guys nice we might charge money we're not sure yet and oh hey i got accepted to jazz camp oh wow i don't know if i told you that is that like space camp it's basically nerd camp it's an adult immersive jazz week up in port townsend washington nice wow i had to audition i got in i probably need to ask for the time off at some point should probably tell nance too i should let her know (laughs) she'll find out in the show yeah she's where's craig bitch he lives here right no, she was actually very encouraging and uh, helped me uh, get my tapes ready and stuff. Nice. That's awesome to hear. So, yeah, Congratulations, a lot of music. Yeah. Thanks. How about you, Lee? What have you been up to since the last time? Well, work is super busy, so but what the hell else is new? Mm-hmm. But I've been working on more videos again, and it's pretty exciting because now I'm getting into animation. Oh. Yeah, you were talking about that last month. What are you doing? Yeah, I started making corporate promotion videos using Adobe Premiere Pro. Just using stock B-roll footage. But now I've been doing my own animations using Adobe Animate, which has been pretty cool. Actually, it's looking more and more like I will have a video-based personal project launching later this year. Oh, say more. Yeah, that's all I can say right now. I've got to do a bunch of prep work before I can launch it. So I'll let you know when it's ready. And I am taking off from work tomorrow because I need some R&R. And I'm going to go fly fishing. Nice. Dude. Getting ready for a summer of fly fishing. Yeah. It is summertime in Colorado. Yep. Cool. How about you? For me, I hate to beat the same drum. As we talked about last month, I recently changed jobs. And so I had to deal with like a month or so of getting reacclimated. So I'm getting my sea legs under me there. And that's working out pretty well. I mean, it's kind of settling into a groove. And then on the personal side, I was talking last month about trimming back my projects because I have way more projects than I can really invest in with any kind of serious commitment. 
And one of the ones I decided to focus on is getting back to music lessons and becoming a legitimate person who can play an instrument properly. I've come from the history of guitar, but I'm deciding to focus on piano. Oh, yeah. And doing some of these online self-directed trainings through like Udemy. I played an instrument in middle school like a lot of us do, but I realized I can't even really name notes like I thought I could. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing this thing in my car where I have basically an ear training track. (laughs) And it's just like, this is B-flap. It just keeps going through that and just loops it. And I listen to it on my way to work sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of starting with that. And then the rest of the music theory class that I'm going through right now. So very cool. Trying to be more serious about it. Good stuff. So we'll loop back around and this time I'll mix it up. Lee, what have you been listening to since last month? I am listening to Matt Dorsey's debut solo album, Let Go. This is the guy, by the way, he's ex-Sound of Contact bassist in Continuum, and he's played with Dave Kersner. This is his debut solo album. It is very melodic. It's actually more straight rock with just edges of prog here and there. Mm -hmm. That part I was a little bit disappointed in. But it's actually a very good album. There's some real standout stuff. He's got a couple of tracks with Marco Miniman, and he's got David Kersner and Jonathan Mover. But this is the really weird part, and I'll just put this out here for listeners. If you close your eyes and listen to Matt Dorsey, it sounds like a prog version of Toad the Wet Sprocket. That's a very interesting comparison. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, and I cannot get away from that. So that's what I've been listening to, Matt Dorsey. Very cool. What about you, Craig? Well, I have been... Wait, let me guess. It's jazz. Actually, yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So I did a little study. I was kind of curious about the jazz standards that Jeff Beck has done. Mm. You know, he had kind of had a pretty strong fusion phase. We've talked about Blow by Blow, which is real jazzy. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize Goodbye Pork Pie Hat is an old Charlie Mingus standard. Mm. The actual original version of that is gorgeous. And Jeff Beck certainly does it justice. Very cool. And also on one of his later albums, he does a song called Stratus, which I never quite put together that it's a Billy Cobham song. (sighs) And the Billy Cobham song actually has Jan Hammer on it. Hmm. I'll be damned. So it's all totally incestuous. Wow. That's a very good word for it. And finally, Jeff Beck was at some Les Paul commemorative concert. And he did a song with an Irish woman called How High the Moon, which is also a jazz standard. Kind of started out as an old sort of boogie song that actually Les Paul did, mm-hmm. became a jazz standard. And then he did this rockabilly version that is just awesome. Anyway, I just thought it was kind of cool that old Jeff Beck uh, dips into the standards pool every now and again. Very cool. The rules are that every jazz player has to know all those songs. So if you go to a jam session, you can say, hey, I want to play How High the Moon in G, and everybody should know it. Know it. Yeah. Cool. Me and, and James, the bass, my bass, I was going to say my bass player, but I'm really his keyboard player. We've been inviting different people to play with us, and it's been really just eye-opening and wonderful. Played with a couple of guitar players last week. We played with a sax player. We got a drummer, and it's just really fun. It's good stuff. That's really cool. For me, I'm, I'm actually taking a page out of Craig's book, and I'm not listening to Prague right now. I think it was how deep I went down the rabbit hole with the Ocean Collective, like the metal side of them. And then this past weekend, I was in LA. I had lunch with friend of the show, Jeff Vicente, and he had turned me on to this metal band a while ago called Alien Weaponry. 
now I'm listening to some of my other old metal standards that I really, really like, like bands like a Krasikauta and more thrash metal. So I'm kind of in that phase right now. Not really prog, but a lot of people crap on metal bands as not being very good, not good musicians, not good instrumentalists. And that's absolutely not true. Listening to some of these bands, the, the technique that these guys have, I wouldn't put it in the class of prog level virtuosity, but Definitely, they're not crap players, for sure. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been listening to, a lot of metal. Cool. Very cool. Lee, why don't you give us some uh, prog news and new releases? The band UK, I don't know how many people in the audience were into them. I was a huge UK fan in the 80s. You loved them. They are going to re-release the album Curtain Call, which was their last album ever recorded in Tokyo in 2013, but it was only available in Japan. Eddie Jobson is going to remix and remaster it and release it worldwide. So I'll be first in line. That lineup is Eddie Jobson, John Wetton, Alex Machisek, and Marco Miniman on drums. So, yeah. Really? So I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be out May 19th. There's a new Stephen Wilson remix and remaster of Gentle Giant's interview. Mm -hmm. If you go back and listen to the Gentle Giant episode, you can hear me talk about that. It is already released, and I can already say I like it. I like anything Stephen Wilson does, so. Right. Mm -hmm. No worries there. Frost is releasing a new album called Island Live, and it's either Blu-ray or a two-CD set. I have ordered it. Yep. It is shipping June 19th, and that lineup is Jim Godfrey, John Mitchell, Nathan King, and Craig Blundell, which, by the way, I think is the best Frost lineup, so. Vola, again, is touring the U.S. uh, September 15th in Denver, and they are working on a new album. And Ray Alder of Fate's Warning has announced he's going to release another solo album. And he has released two teasers called Waiting for Some Sun and This Hollow Shell. And then, rather than do a detailed list, this is what's coming out in May. Mystery's new album, Redemption. New Yes, Mirror to the Sky. New Ocean Collective Holocene. And don't forget new Arian Lucasen, his band Supersonic Revolution, and their release is called The Golden Age of Music. July will be Einar Solberg, his solo album 16. And then sometime later on will be Afkervist. If Peter Gabriel ever gets around to releasing I.O., <laughs> it'll be a miracle. <laughs> I know. Pattern Seeking Animals, fourth album, and Kairos has an album in the can. And that's the news. Well, thank you, Lee. Yep. And Craig, let's do what we always do with you and tell us about something unheard of. It's unheard of. So this band reached out to us on Instagram and um, I was intrigued, mostly because they cold called us. It's a band out of Chile. So I think we might have hit all the continents except Antarctica now. This band is called Isles. I posted this to the two of you guys today. Some of the prog periodicals call them neo-prog. Mm-hmm. I never really heard that term before, but they said, oh, it's kind of like Marillion. And I don't really think they're like Marillion at all. <clears throat> they have a lot of different sounds. They go from chill, moody, to poppy, to pretty heavy, very lyrical, a lot of long songs, a lot of guitar, a lot of keyboards, really cool stuff. So uh, let's listen to a clip of them, shall we?
Have you ever heard of a band called Jadis? Either one of you? Nope. I have not. It's a French prog band, and that track he played sounds exactly like Jadis. Oh, cool. Nice. It's kind of uncanny. This is kind of one of their more chill songs. Uh, I like it. It's from their album of the same name called In Sudden Walks. And in fact, they have a number of albums. Their first album came out in 2005, was called The Yearning. That was originally just going to be a demo reel, but came out really good, so they released it and got great reviews, and they were on their way. Uh, Another album's called 4.45 AM, and then this uh, next one is called Hawaii, and it's for you, Tony. It's a two-disc concept album (laughs) about human colonies established in space after the destruction of Earth. Yep, I'm sold. It's got a song on it called Pale Blue Dot, which I thought was a cover of a Lonely Robot song, but it is in fact different. It's also a Dream Theater song. Mm -hmm. Is it really? Yeah. Then they have a live album, and then they just came out with Beyond Drama. Let's listen to some 4.45 a.m. like that jazz takeoff that is the best dueling guitar since leonard skinner i'm telling you (laughs) (laughs) free bird free bird what song does he want to hear uh anyway let me just give a quick shout out to the members of the band israel gill german vergara is the uh, founder of the band i'm sure i'm pronouncing all these wrong philippe candia is on drums rodrigo sepulveda is on guitars Juan Pablo Gaete, I am so sorry, Juan, is on keyboards, and Daniel Alejandro Concha on bass. So we'll listen to one last clip. This is called Game Over. It's a 10-minute instrumental off of their latest album. I like that a lot. That's good stuff. That's a wide variety of styles. Yeah. And dude, I barely scratched it. Wow. They cover so much ground in the different styles that they play. Some of it just straight ahead metal, some great keyboard stuff. That last one really turned me on. That's good stuff. So yeah, cool band, great discography. They're on all the social media, Bandcamp. Like I say, they reached out to us on Instagram. And again, they're called Isles. They seem like nice guys. They sent a really nice note to us. So uh, check them out. Very cool. Back to you, Tony. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Craig. And uh, let's go talk about some other stuff like tech and prog. As we were prepping for the last episode of this season, honestly, in, in full transparency, I had one idea. And the more I thought about it and beat it around with you guys, it just wasn't working out. And I was like, well, what else would be really cool? And I think we all kind of take for granted that there's tech in prog these days. But why don't we all pick our favorite thing to talk about that's a tech thing that people use in Prague and just see how that pans out. And you guys were kind of game to go with it. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. 
Craig. Why don't you do yours first, and then we'll do Lee. And I want to try and do a wrap up because I have a hypothesis here, and um, we'll see if it works. So why don't you start with yours, Craig? We're going to establish a through line. So my favorite topic is obviously synthesizers. From a young age, even before I really played anything, I was always intrigued by electronic music. I remember when I was a kid, there's a science museum in Philadelphia called the Franklin Institute. Mm-hmm. When other kids were playing sports, I went there for summer camp. And this one particular summer, they had a big-ass electronic music demonstration. And this is before modular synthesizers. And here's seven-year-old Craig twiddling knobs and going, mm-hmm. and I was hooked. And what is it about synthesizers that was so appealing to you, though? Just the sound. The, like, robotic sound, like an LFO? or At the time, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but... I think it might have just been the fact that I like electronics as well, Mm -hmm. because there really wasn't much in the way of aesthetics in this particular exhibit that I was at. Really, it was twiddling knobs, and I had no idea what I was even doing, but it appealed to me as a nerd, because I like twiddling knobs and pushing buttons and Mm -hmm. having stuff come out. I totally get that. Listeners may remember that partway through last season, I picked up on Amazon a a little stylophone. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's exactly that experience, right? And just sitting there and playing around with it and seeing what you can get out of it is kind of a, a just a cool, very tactile experience. So I got myself this thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a $149 ST Micro emulating an analog synthesizer, but it's got a VCO, a VCA, a low-pass filter, resonance, you know, all the stuff that you need. Mm-hmm. And even though here it is, you know, 60 years or 55 years later, whatever, I plug it in, I still get a kick out of it going, and making noises. Yeah. But modular synthesizers, which was taking that exhibit that I went to and making it such that people could quote unquote program sounds. Mm -hmm. And instead of programming them, you're patching oscillator outputs into LFO inputs. And there's people that do that in performance now. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of hobbyists, and there's a ton of hobbyist support for modular synthesizers nowadays that's doing that exact thing, which I think is interesting because going back 30 or so years, everything was digital, everything was wavetables, everything was samples. And, mm-hmm. you know, how accurate are the samples? Is it delta sigma modulation or is it real 12 bits? And what's the roll off of the filter? And blah, 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 blah. And we're kind of coming full circle, which I think is kind of cool. And it kind of goes with the whole vinyl thing, maybe. I'm going to touch on that in my section, but I think there's definitely an element of that. Why do you think it is that an instrument like a synthesizer has been so indelibly attached to progressive music? I think because you can do so much with them. Mm -hmm. You can do the atmospherics where you have a low attack on some strings and you have this nice pad, kind of like I've taken opiates version of music. You know, it's just got a <laughs> kind of thing along the bottom and everything's okay. The musical version of opium. And at the same time, you can punch it up and lock a bunch of oscillators together and give it a very fast attack and you can compete with any electric guitar. Mm-hmm. You can be out front as well. So Prague has those elements. Uh, you can do sequencing and you can do arpeggiating in weird time signatures. Like if you think about the end of, uh, you know, Carnival 9, Third Impression, where they have that thing goes and it just goes fast. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's Keith's giant modular synthesizer. You're not going to do that on a guitar. You can certainly try. You can try. And I'm, I suspect maybe even during the Carl Palmer shows that he tours with, maybe 
he does because he's got a great guitar player with him. Anyway, you know, it's just, it gives you just such a ridiculous broad palette of sounds available to you. And they can be otherworldly as well as emulating instruments. You were talking about that opiate kind of atmospheric feeling. <laughs> uh, an artist that comes to mind is Eric Norlander. A lot of his music has that feel, and that's exactly how he builds those atmospherics up. Hmm. I listen to all this other music, Frost, The Ocean Collective, Arion, mm -hmm. but if I just need to like have a proggy, mellow listening experience, I'll go to Eric. But yeah, like I totally get that. I don't know Eric Norlander. Where is he from? He's from California. He's a solo artist, and I think he's also a composer, hmm. but he's part of a band called Rocket Scientists as well. I discovered him because he was a collaborator of Aryan. Very cool. As I've said before, that was my center of my spoke and went out from there. So I want to jump in on the Emerson comment. Go for it. Because you can't do that on a guitar because what Craig left out of there is it's actually a sequencer playing a synthesizer. Right. It starts up, but it starts going so fast, it actually makes its own tone with overtones. <sighs> and you absolutely cannot do that on a guitar. Mm. There you have it. There's a lot of things that I think synths bring that you cannot possibly replicate on a guitar. Having said that, what I think was kind of a turning point, perhaps, for synthesizer adoption in music is stuff like pitch bend and mod wheels mm -hmm. right. that allow it to be played expressively like a guitar. Yeah, but you can also do really, really wide portamentos. Oh, sure, sure. So you can do portamentos that are over two octaves. Yeah, which you do that with a whammy bar and you're going to break the string. Yeah, exactly. The, you can, you know, get close to that on a guitar, but you're not going to get that wide a portamento. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they are expressive. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of really good YouTubes of Keith Emerson demonstrating his monster modular synth. Right. And it's cool to hear him talk about it. Here's the amplifier. Here's the envelope generator. Here's the oscillator. Especially in that classic era of music. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you just said happens a lot. They're super proud and want to talk about it. Yeah. All the patch cables, it's really like programming. Yeah. So one of my favorite stories about synthesizers and ELP and all that. Lucky Man has that iconic Mini Moog synth solo. Mm -hmm. That was the first take. And that was a brand new thing that somebody just brought to the studio. And they're like, hey, Keith, why don't you play a solo on this thing we just got? And he played it over Lucky Man, as we've all heard a billion times. And they're like, oh, okay, why don't you do a few more takes? And he did a bunch more takes, and they were all crappy relative to this first one. That synth solo on Lucky Man is basically history in the making. It was, you know, his entry point into synthesizers on his albums. That's really cool. Yeah. Lee, I'm very interested. I extended the question to Craig about why he thinks synths are so indelibly tied to prog music. Like, why do you think? I don't think that synthesizers are unique to prog, but I do think prog would be very different without synthesizers. Mm -hmm. But in the episode about keyboards and their contribution to prog, we talked about people like Rick Wigman and Keith Emerson, Tony Banks, Carrie Minier. They were looking for a way to bring their classical influence and classical training to make a completely new sound. One way to be progressive or to change things up is to add insane virtuosity or, you know, changing time signatures or speed or whatever it happens to be. 
But another way to do that is just to go add sounds that nobody's ever heard before, and synths are ideal for that. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough time in this episode to talk about the way synths work, but basically you're talking about oscillators modulating other oscillators and VCAs, and Craig's brought a lot of that up. But inherently, they are sounds that you don't get in the natural world. You have to really work, at least at synths, to make them sound like natural instruments. And that's what I think makes it really unique to Prague is you still find the virtuosity of people like Jordan Rudis on an acoustic piano. But if you want something that's going to sound really wild and rock people's world, well, let's go grab a synth. That's not going to sound like anything they've heard before. Yeah. I mean, and especially like in the Arion world, when he wants to make something sound quote unquote sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. Think about all of those space movies in the 1980s. I was going to say every B movie in the 60s. Yep. It's synths all over the place because it sounds otherworldly. So I got a quick bit of trivia. First use in a pop song. Any guesses? I wanted to say it had to be Wendy Carlos, but um, was it something like popcorn? Deep, 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 no, deep, this, is, this precedes that. I, I think the Beatles did, right? They weren't the first. Oh, really? I don't know then. Here it comes. And that's it. <laughs> Diana Ross? Seriously? And I think there's like a beep boop in the middle. Wow. I want to never go that. That's according to Wikipedia. I cannot vouch for its uh, integrity, but it's um, early. I think it's like 66. Okay. 1966. Okay. So fast forward today. And when you think about it, you don't really even need synthesizers anymore. And what I think we're starting to see is different schools of thought. If Rick Wakeman comes and tours with Yes or whatever's left of Yes or John Anderson, whatever, he's going to have a rack of synthesizers. Yeah. He's going to have five mini moves. He's going to have a B3. He's going to have a clab. He's going to have an electric piano. And he doesn't really need to. Mm-hmm. All he needs is, you know, a controller with some keyboard action and a controller with a good synthesizer action. Right. And that leads directly into my topic. What Craig's talking about is you have to have a keyboard with the engine sitting in your room to be able to use it. What really turns me on, which started about the year 2000, is virtual instruments. And really all that is, is a synthesizer or a sampler, but it's running in your PC. So it's using your own CPU and CPU threads to generate the sounds versus those sounds having to be generated by dedicated hardware inside the sampler or the synthesizer. And at first glance, that might just seem like an interesting little technology footnote. But for a composer, that is a major leap forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just can't say enough about what virtual instruments have done for my writing in the studio. There's a number of advantages. It is almost unlimited voices. So like sitting over my shoulder is an Insonic ESQ, and that's an old keyboard. So I think it only has 16 voices. And that's it. If you start playing more keys than that, it will just start cutting off the first voice. Mm. But you don't have that problem with a virtual instrument. It will run, essentially, to the limits of your PC. And it may seem like you would run out of CPU threads, but you don't, because there is so much caching going on with the different sounds that it can essentially keep up. Yeah, and audio is slow relative to a processor speed of gigahertz. Yes, exactly. What Craig's pointing out, audio is one of the slowest waveforms there is. So there's a lot of time for the CPU to catch up 
do other stuff. Yep. And you can essentially play instruments that you've never trained on. Here's an example. This is a soundtrack theme I wrote for a friend of mine, an author, shout out to James, who wrote a pirate's book and was looking to do a books on tape. So I helped him produce that. that's awesome thank you that is an orchestra at your fingertips yeah and that's 12 tracks completely on midi playing virtual samples Mm -hmm. and here let me give you another example sounds were those there's a variety of sources that i'm playing for you here the orchestra samples in that first clip come from a public domain library called the total composure orchestra and i had to put those together into my own sample library and then in the second clip that nylon guitar is a sample library i purchased called acoustic and a lot of these are also coming from the native instruments complete collection Mm -hmm. They're sort of all over the place. Okay. But you can really render a full orchestra or a full band almost immediately. Gorgeous. Implementation is very, very fast. You don't have to have a whole variety of mics, a soundproof room. Did you have to learn or sort of teach yourself how to play with particular nuance for different instruments? Yeah, that sounds very much like you're actually playing the real instrument. And so I'm, I'm curious about the nuance that you have to play on keys. Yeah, let's jump to that because that is one of the disadvantages. Nuance can be a real challenge depending on the instrument. For example, the nylon guitar part in that song was written on a piano and it sounded like this at the beginning. And so I'm happy with that, but I know this is going to nylon guitar, so right away, get rid of the sustain pedal. 
no sustain pedal on a guitar, and I want to make sure the strings are ringing, especially the bass strings. So if I take it right over to the nylon guitar sample I have in the library called Acoustic, this is what it sounds like. Yeah, you hear the problems right away. First of all, there's dropped notes. There's notes I'm playing in the keyboard range that don't exist on the nylon guitar range. So I've got to go back and transpose those. Hmm. And this is more subtle, but I would find that it would also drop voices for another reason. It was choosing the same string to play two or more notes that were meant to be in an arpeggio. So it would stop the first note to play the second note. You know, it's a guitar string. It can't ring with two different notes at the same time. That's something a keyboard player never thinks about when writing for guitar. Was it doing that? The engine was doing that. No, you're kidding. A lot of these have their own built-in mm-hmm. engines that will select what string they're going to play on. No kidding. So what I had to do to render this properly was I had to go build a guitar tablature for this song that I wrote on a keyboard. And then once I had the guitar tab the way I wanted... I had to break this into six different samples, one for each string, so it would play correctly, like this. So it would let the strings ring, like an acoustic guitar does. And did you hear the fret squeak? Mm-hmm. It'll even do crap like fret squeaks. It's just amazing. amazing. So yes, it can take a lot of work interpreting one instrument when you're used to a different instrument. Yeah. But if you can start controlling that nuance, you can get some pretty killer stuff out of it. For example, this is one of the rhythm guitar lines from the song Inviolate that I did last season. Now, since I was 12 years old, I've wanted to play a song like that, (laughs) and I got to do it through virtual instruments. So that was done on keyboard with a MIDI controller playing into your computer. Yes. God bless America. That's cool. (laughs) That's absolutely cool. But for that one, I had to think when I would be hitting chords with my strumming hand versus when I would be moving legato between chords on the fretboard without strumming. Because each of those playing styles will use a different sample. You know, something a guitar player doesn't even have to think about, but a keyboard player has to really think that out. Uh And that sample library is called electricity. Now, here's how elaborately you can control these things. The manual for electricity is 54 pages long. (laughs) Because of all the different things you can do with this thing, it has expression. So I can do strums, muted strums, half-muted strums, dead-muted strums, palm mutes, trills, tremolo picking, finger release styles. It's, it just doesn't end all the different options you can have on this. Crazy. 
Here's another one. This is the violin solo from Song for America by the band Kansas. I really wanted to see what it would take to arrange this for two keyboard players live, so I cobbled together a bunch of MIDI files. Virgin land of forest green darkness. Yeah, great song. And this gets into something called articulations. There are three different articulations in that one little piece. Because you can play a violin so many different ways that I wasn't even aware of. So there's a spiccato section. There's a legato section with vibrato. There's a marcato. There's a detaché. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. And those are all generated when the original violinist was sitting down to record the sample library, played in all those different styles. So with articulations, you can be switching between sample libraries on the fly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can control things like the bowing motion, where you're playing on the neck. You're learning everything except actually playing the violin, but everything else. But it still sounds awesome. It does sound really great. Yeah. Here's what the whole song sounds like. And this is about 14 tracks on MIDI with virtual instruments. love that song oh, me too and listeners i'm just going to apologize because i know i'm just flexing and showing off here but i hope i'm making a point that just what these things can do and how flexible this can be for you so i want to bring something back and tie something together real quickly you know we did our april fools episode ai driven stuff we've talked in the past that some of the bands we've covered on unheard of like mute profit are using AI in their virtual instruments to make their virtual instruments sound like other things. Mm-hmm. How do you think this fits in with the one of our core tenets of what is prog with the virtuosity of it? Well, it's certainly virtuosity as far as the instruments you can now play and record with. Mm-hmm. I have a concert grand piano library. I have a Hammond B3 library that's got built-in Leslie with inertia in it. Mm-hmm. You know, those are instruments I could never afford to buy, but I can play these sample libraries through my little Casio CDP-100, which has great action, but terrible sounds, and make it sound wonderful. Right. The AI engines in these things are definitely there to help you with articulation and nuance, but it's not going to make you play accurately. It's not going to make you play like Keith Emerson or Eddie Jobson. Like, when CAD CAM first started, people were like, oh, no, this is terrible. Engineers won't be designing anymore. It'll all be computers. And we all know that's not the case. Yeah. Virtual instruments, the same thing. You can go buy this stuff, but Mm -hmm. 
but it's not going to make you sound any better if you don't know how to play. Right. Hmm. Yeah. In using the tools that are in front of you, there, there's a certain amount of expertise that is required. Absolutely. So everything I've been playing for you comes from my copy of Native Instruments Complete, and I think I have the select version. It's the middle bundle, whatever that is. And then I've picked up and added a few open source libraries to that over the years. And I've purchased a couple of other third-party libraries like Electricity and Acoustic. The sample engine in Native Instruments is called Contact, K-O-N-T-A-K-T. And it is by far the most popular sample engine out there. So when you're buying libraries, make sure they will run with whatever engine you decide to purchase. There is a runtime-only version of Contact that's cheaper. Or you can buy the full version and it will let you do a lot more elaborate layering of samples and things like that. And we've been talking about samples, but they also have virtual instruments that are synthesizers, like Craig brought up. So one of the things I have is a synth module called Massive X. And you can do exactly what he was talking about. You can patch VCOs together and VCAs, Mm. put an LFO on the end of it and all that kind of crap. And you can build a whole library of synthesizer sounds, Mm -hmm. and it's essentially using your CPU to generate the oscillators and the voices. So it's pretty amazing stuff. Now, you use these inside of a DAW, correct? It does plug into a DAW by virtual synthesis technology, but you don't have to use a VST. You can use it standalone. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. And that's one of the things I wanted to bring up here is this is great for recording, but live... I think you got to be careful with it mm-hmm. because A, you're taking a computer on the road with you now as your sound module. And I'm always really nervous about computers in live situations. Look at Frost at the Colony Room. It's got to be a pretty bulletproof rig if I was going to think about doing that. Yeah, I think it was Mike Andreas when we were talking to him told yeah. us the horror story of someone showing up and their computer wasn't working. Well, Peter Jones, the keyboardist from Haken, just made a post a few days ago about. Where's my computer? They couldn't find his laptop uh, when they were live. I saw that. So if it's me, I would lean towards taking the sounds and putting them in a keyboard and just trying to match up as closely as you can get. Right now, I still love VI for recording, but I don't know that I'm confident enough to say I would do it live. Awesome. So Awesome. Thank you very much, Lee. So I'm going to try and round us out here. We've already hinted at this a little bit, and I'm going to talk about DAWs. There are lots of different DAWs, and we hinted at this as well in the AI episode where we made the illusion that DAWs came along, like things like Pro Tools, and people thought it took something away from the process, and similarly with AI. But what I want to make the case of is, similar to what Lee was just saying, if you just treat it as a tool, and you know how to use it as a tool, you can actually do things better. There are definitely some disadvantages I'm going to touch on but it is a very powerful tool for you. So the idea for me talking about DAWs came from a few months ago when I was watching that documentary about Sound City Studios in LA and their infamous Neve board and the sound that they got out of it, the tone they got out of it. And there's a part of that documentary where they're really breaking down the whole recording process and how you have to do everything and the splicing. And I was really thinking about the trajectory that that took going forward. And so DAWs are a natural evolution of a lot of that process. It's the automation of a lot of that process. So let's think about what you can do in a modern DAW and what a modern DAW is 
to really put it in context, the acronym, everyone just throws around DAW, but it's Digital Audio Workstation. And so when you think about what an audio workstation would have been, it would have been the place where you record. If you're doing multi-tracking, it would have been that place. If you're splicing, ostensibly, that's not exactly the same workstation, but now you can bring it into one place. It's where you do mixing. It's where you would do mastering. And now you can have it all in one environment. Instead of having multiple pieces of equipment, if you have ever gone in on YouTube, I think Rick Beato did some videos talking about this, where you're doing these really, really precise tape splices to really get things to line up right. And you have to be a real expert at doing a tape splice so you don't get a pop in the tape. Sure. I've even heard stories of them literally cutting it laterally and then mixing things over, really trying to do weird stuff because you knew that you had eight tracks, but in this one section, you were only using three, so that left five left over. So you do a lateral splice so that you don't lose something in the mix. Really, really complicated stuff that becomes basically trivial once you have a doll. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things I wanted to look at was, in terms of time savings, how much faster is it really? So I went out and I did some research, and I found this metric that said in 1963, the average album would take approximately two weeks just to record. And they said that that was a minimum. And I think if you go listen to a lot of interviews from back in the day, it's probably more than that, probably on the order of a month or two. Then two to four months minimum to mix and master it. So you're already talking about at least a six to nine month period, which when we think about some of the artists that we've talked about where they're releasing multiple albums per year, Back in those days, they were basically recording, hitting the road, immediately coming back and going right into the studio. It was like a nonstop process. And the cost engaged was on the order of, in some cases, 30K, but more typical was in like half a million to a million dollars for a really well-recorded, well-polished, well-released album. Mm. I did a search of album recording, and I found a place called Core Studios that advertises that you could, depending on what you're doing, get a completely recorded, mixed, mastered, everything album in between a week and a month, beginning to end. Hmm. For on the order of a few thousand dollars, they actually say, contact us for details, right? The typical thing. Mm -hmm. That's entirely enabled by a DAW. Sure. And when you think about the expertise, as Lee was very much talking about, like all the nuance he had to do with VSTs and things like that. There's a similar level of nuance with how to really get the most out of a doll. And as I mentioned this past weekend, I was having lunch with Jeff Vicente and I, I brought this question to him and he's like, yeah, you know, there's all these different software packages and some are good at this and some are good at that, but you don't really know how to use the particular software package that you have. You're going to be behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm you could actually put what you do in a quote-unquote high-end expensive software package if you don't know what you're doing there against someone who's using an ostensibly cheaper, lower-end package but really knows how to use it, you're going to get inferior quality. It's a tool. So some of the other advantages from DAWs these days is you can work with many more tracks, ostensibly infinite tracks, very similar to the VSTs. As much resources as your computer has, you have the ability to do that. If you're doing everything digital, like most people do these days, you can ostensibly completely mitigate any losses or muddiness that's due to analog busing or the weird stuff that happens when you're sending things out to tape. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was just describing a few minutes ago, the weirdness that happens when you have to make choices of I've only got this many channels and I'm going to send this out to tape so I can then mix that down and bring that in as another channel on the rest of the mix. I went back and I was listening to older stuff, stuff that predates the digital era. And we've talked in the past a little bit about how there's more warmth of the older albums, like in the 60s and 70s. There's also like a weird muddiness to it, which is really limited to the resources that they had at their disposal. You don't have that here, but there's a downside to that in that there's an almost artificial brightness to most modern recordings. Hmm. You don't have the roll off in the high end. The high end is perfectly preserved and it can sound sharp. There are certain producers that understand that these days. And they can mitigate that. They can make it sound a little softer on the high end so it sounds more natural. And if you're just one of those music mill producers that's just spitting stuff out all the time and you're not spending any effort on that, there's definitely an artificial brightness to things. And I think that you hear a lot of that in most pop now. Sure. Because pop is churned out so fast. And I'll give some examples of that even in, in a legend. When we talk about disadvantages of DAWs, there can be definite challenges. Like if you get into one package, you may be stuck in that package forever, or at least it's going to be super painful to move from one package to another. Lee uses Cakewalk, and Lee, do you feel like you're trapped in Cakewalk? Yes, I absolutely feel like I'm trapped in Cakewalk. (laughs) So I've been using Cakewalk since it was on a Commodore 64 Mm -hmm. with no GUI. And I had to have a calculator sitting next to me if I wanted to change tempos and things. It was just crazy. So I've grown up with it, and I must have 60, 65 works in there. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to move to Pro Tools. I just don't know how I would get all those projects migrated. Right. There is an open media framework file, OMF, that some DAWs support, so you can move back and forth. But I've found it's kind of limited. So yes, to answer your question, I do feel trapped in Cakewalk. Yeah. And I think that that's true, even in tools that have the best of intentions. Yep. When I was first getting into this world, I'm very much an open source geek, and I went down the path of working with an open source package called Ardor, which is a great package. It had some limitations that I didn't particularly like, but there are plenty of examples of people using it. When we were starting to think about doing this show and some other stuff I wanted to record, I was very careful to consider and go into choosing the package that I use, which is Reaper. Relatively speaking to Cakewalk and some of the others, it's a very low-end, cheap package. I think it's a very feature-rich. don't want to diminish it, but it's not an expensive one is what I'm trying to communicate. But I had to understand what are the limitations of it and what would be the problems that I would face if I ever wanted to move to something like Logic or Cubase or Pro Tools or something like that. So there's also this idea, this modern world of using DAWs and VSTs and and those kinds of things is somehow inferior to when you used to record on tape and when you used to have real instruments and, and all of those things. And I just don't think that's true. Similar to what I said in the AI episode, I just definitely think that it's a tool that you can learn how to use and you can use it poorly and things will suck and people will make fun of you. Or you can learn how to use it well and have success. Some random trivia I want to talk about. Just a quick Wikipedia search about DAWs. There's like 30 different DAWs on the market. Some free, some open source, some closed source. Really, really high end, really, really low end. 
one of my interesting things I came across as trivia is I'm a big fan of the original Fairlight CMI. And I never thought of it as a doll, but there are a lot of people that are like, it's one of the very first dolls. Oh, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But it cost $30,000. Right. Like in those days, you, you could have bought a house. Fairlight and Synclavier were the big two right. at the time. And you had to have it hauled over to your house by a crane. Yeah. <laughs> the very first, what we would recognize as a doll was actually released in 1978. It's called Digital Editing System, and it ran on the deck PDP-11. Oh, my God. A little bit of trivia that I think Andy West would appreciate if he didn't already know it. <laughs> and Jeff actually pointed out to me, you have to be really careful talking to people because Coke has become a shorthand, Kleenex has become a shorthand, Photoshop has become a shorthand. The word Pro Tools apparently in the industry has become a shorthand. And people will just say, I'm working in Pro Tools. And they're not actually working in Pro Tools. They just mean they're working in a doll. Really? That's an interesting thing I wasn't aware of. I want to talk about some interesting things with Peter Gabriel and Stephen Wilson. When Peter Gabriel recorded his last full-length album, part of their base mix of, of things they were recording was this big 48-channel mixer and then a 32-track Pro Tools system. And they actually used ADATs and Macs and stuff like that as backups for all of that system. And that album is actually one that I think if you go listen to early Peter Gabriel, Salisbury Hill, during the middle part of that song, if you listen to it by modern standards, it sounds very, very muddy. And if you compare that to more recent compositions of his, particularly around the turn of the century, songs like Down to Earth and Growing Up, they're very clear. You can hear every instrument in that mix if you listen. If you go back and you listen to Salisbury Hill, you know those instruments are there, but you kind of have to stretch your ear to hear them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do that in modern mixes. You can really easily pick out all of the instruments that exist there. And I th really attribute that to the modern technology of DAWs and the fidelity that they maintain the entire way through the process. Stephen Wilson, Lee was talking earlier about his Gentle Giant work. He's also done work for King Crimson. And he's even said in interviews that if he can get the original tracks, not mixed tracks, but the original recorded tracks individually, he can do some amazing things and that's how he actually gets most of the success he has. And he's lamented when he can't get that because he's like, I, I'm limited in what I can do with remastering this old album. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's another big believer in Pro Tools. And he has said, I didn't even have all of the instruments I needed. And so he actually supplements with virtual instruments. That's funny. It's kind of cool how all of the technology comes together. So in short, I just want to say, the technology is really cool. I think it's really interesting. I don't know how much people think about it. And Lee made the point earlier, this technology is not unique to Prague. But I just wanted to challenge people to slow down and think about what goes into making an album, whether it's Prague or not. We often talk in the Prague space about the virtuosity of the players or the structure of the composition. I'm a big fan about all of the behind the scenes, how the sausage gets made stuff. And so I just see them as an extension of the craft. Thank you guys for playing along with this. I really, really appreciate it. Do you guys have any closing thoughts on what we've talked about? I think the technology is actually leading people away from traditional music production mm -hmm. and more towards soundscapes and soundtracks and gaming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because now you can write an entire soundtrack with an orchestra. Yeah. 
John Beckel talked about in his interview that he can sit down and score a movie in basically a weekend now. Yeah. And at very, very, very high quality. Yeah. It's amazing. It's not like it's a draft track. This is a track that could probably go right into production. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Awesome. We usually do recommendations at this point. I'll say that my recommendations are some of these Peter Gabriel and Stephen Wilson tracks. I'll link to those in the show notes and also put them on up3show.com. My recommendation is, if you got your Genesis bingo card, listen to Foxtrot and then listen to Selling Angle by the Pound. Since my topic was synthesizers, that was the point where Tony Banks went from not being a synthesizer player to being a synthesizer player. So it's interesting to listen to the whole Selling Angle by the Pound album because there's a lot of synthesizers in there and it was all new to him. Mm-hmm. And it's all really cleanly done. You know, nothing is like, oh, let's put some beep boop in here. He's using them very musically and it kind of came out of the gate a strong. Awesome. And my recommendation is if you want to hear where the switchover occurred between analog mastering and digital mastering, listen to Union by Yes in 1991. And then go listen to Talk in 1994. Mm-hmm. And Talk is the first time Yes used digital mastering and digital recording. And you can really hear the difference, like Tony said. That's cool. So as we exit, guys, as always, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at UP3Show. And we're also on Mastodon at UP3Show on the Mastodon.social server. You can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. Check us out on UP3Show.com. Because this is the end of season three. Yep. Good Lord. We're going to do our normal annual hiatus. And I'd love to get some great suggestions from the listeners over the summer so that we can come back and talk about what you want to hear about. If you want to support the show, it's super easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. Also, if your service supports it, please take a moment to write a review. This helps to make sure that the show pops up whenever people search for it and can end up in like recommended lists and things like that. If you are inclined to support the show financially, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. If you throw a few coins our way, it can help keep all the episodes online and keep things coming your way every month. Keep the lights on. Thank you, guys. End of season three. Thanks. Wrap party. Wrap party. Bye. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.